In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, you don't have to turn there yet, the Lord said through Paul, Paul wrote this, but this is a statement of the Spirit, the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ constrains us. If you're already turning over there, you can mark that, but also I want to read from Luke chapter 15. Those will be the two places we read today. 2 Corinthians 5 and Luke chapter 15. The last couple times I've tried to preach here, maybe the last few times, it's been focused on on you, the, the, the person. How does God want to use me? What do I need to do? How can I be more effective in my life? How can I be used by God? Today, I want us to talk about the Lord. And... Uh, I'm going to use a parable to do it, a familiar parable, and it's the prodigal son. We've heard it preached on many times, I'm sure, if you've been in church. I'll go ahead and read it. Before I do, though, I want to give the context of this passage. The Lord tells three parables in this passage. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. In every one of those, he points out that you go looking for what is lost, and it's worth it. And what is safe at home is safe at home. And he answered, he gave these three parables in response. This is what it says in fifteen, first verse, Luke 15. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and the sinners in order to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he spoke this parable unto them, saying, that's when he then gave the three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Isn't that the way it is? Honest-hearted sinners gather together to hear the truth, and religious elite, self-righteous people murmur. The wrong kind, they don't have on the right clothes, they're from the wrong background, They have diseases. They're dirty. They smell bad. You ever worked with homeless people in the summer? In our, at the VA, in the public contact building, that's what everybody says. If you work down there in the summer, the customers smell bad. And all of those things cause, I guess people in general, but especially religious people, to have this feeling inside that that person is somehow subpar or not worth it. And we do it without even realizing it. And, and Brother Ben preached about that when he preached on this passage about the prodigal son's brother. If you heard that message, think about that right now, that how many of us, as he said, are the prodigal son's brother instead of the prodigal son. But I want to talk about the prodigal son's father some. So this is how G- Jesus answers their murmurings and complainings and also how he preaches to the sinners. There's one more thing on my heart I need to tell you before we read. Jesus was accused of uh, being a friend of sinners, and he was. He was a friend to sinners. But I want you who know the Lord to understand that those the sinners were not the people that Jesus had in his close confidence. 
They weren't the people that he spent all of his time with. He spent all of his time with a small group of men that he was training to know him. And this is, this is to all of us. You have to be careful who you consider a friend. Yes. You can be friendly with everybody. You can pal around. You can love people. You can be kind to them. You can care about their lives. But the people you let into your confidence, the people you have an affinity with, those people who shape the kind of man or woman you are, you should be very selective about. I always quote George Washington, our first president, who said it's better to be alone than in bad company. Yes. He said, if you esteem your own reputation and character, you, you choose these certain kind of people to be around. And I want you to know, because this is, this is just a side note to the message, there is an undercurrent in religion today that scoffs at the idea of being selective about people who influence you. They think that there's this level field and, and, and all Christians and, and people of the world, everybody should just look exactly the same and live exactly the same so you don't offend anyone. But Scripture tells us clearly, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, and, and I will receive you, I'll redeem you, I'll save you, I'll help you, I'll empower you. That's what all that's talking about. Let's read. 11th verse, Luke 15. Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided them in, among his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent everything, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would almost have filled his belly with the husk of the swine that they ate, and no man gave it unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough to spare, and I am perishing with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son, make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, he hadn't even told him this yet, he said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. The father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead. He's alive again, he was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. Now, the elder son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come. And thy father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. This means he reasoned with him with empathy and compassion. And he answered and said to his father, All these many years have I served you, neither transgressed at your commandment, and yet you never gave me a, a kid, a, a, a baby, um, goat or sheep that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this 
other son was come, which has devoured your living with harlots. Do you get that? He spent it all on bad women, what the brother says. You have killed the fatted calf for him. And he said unto him, Son, you're always here with me, and all that I have is yours. But it was appropriate that we should make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This parable is maybe one of the most preached on in Scripture, and so I'm not going to spend time on all the different aspects. I want to ask you a question. Why did the prodigal son leave? Why did he leave his father's house? Was he bored? What made him want to go to other land and live like that? Do you have bad friends who had been out traveling, lived riotously, been with women who were more adventurous than the Jewish women? Better liquor in those countries? More excitement? We don't know. Did he, was he just not satisfied with his father's provision? We need to realize this too about the, the culture. These men lived there at their father's estate. And he was going to give them his inheritance. And according to their tradition, the elder son would have probably gotten two-thirds and the younger son would have gotten a third. And this son, this was when the father dies. And let me say this before I get to that. Why did he leave? I mean, people just, we don't think about that. We just, well, he just went and he was sinful. And we do the same thing with sinful people. When I say we, I mean there's a tendency among religious people. You, you look at the sin and you don't see the person underneath. And that's exactly what his brother did to him. Was it factual that he spent all of his money on bad women? Well, there's not a lot in this story we don't know. Why did his brother think that he hadn't even talked to him? Was he the sort of man who was already doing that at home some or not? He had a reputation in his brother's mind as being wasteful, careless, reckless. The word prodigal means wasteful. This is what it means. The wasteful son. When people leave the church, that's a... <laughs> you hear that phrase a lot now. Why are all the young people leaving the church? What is what they call the church offering? That organization. They started a couple few decades ago offering a bunch of entertainment with Jesus plastered on top. They started offering excitement and concerts and, and, and free daycare and all these things and just mixed Jesus in a little. They started offering health, wealth, and prosperity and having your best life now. And after a while, people realized they were still empty. They were still unhappy. They still had no fulfillment. And they did what so many people do. They finally gave up on it all. Why, why would I go serve this religious system that I don't even feel anything? There's a flip side of that. I know people who aren't Christian, don't believe in God, and they go to church regularly because it makes them feel good. They tell me that. Oh, I don't believe in God. I just go because it feels good. The routine feels good. The music is uplifting. 
The music is designed to be uplifting. And it also makes them feel good to give some money to that organization. Because they feel guilty about having more stuff than people in other countries who are less fortunate. So they don't even believe to God. I'm telling you people I know personally. And they go to church, sing the songs and tithe because it makes them feel better. For a while. Until tragedy strikes. Until bitterness consumes. Until sadness overwhelms. Then they'll leave. In order for us to understand the question I'm asking, why did the son leave? We have to understand that this parable is a parable about the house of God. About his, he is obviously the father in this parable. And the sons represent two kinds of his children. And one kind, I'm talking now about Christians and religious people. One kind of the father's children is the eldest son who's been faithful, who's done the right thing, who's been righteous by society's standards. He's always been straight-laced. He's always been to church on time. He tithes regularly, not just once a year, because it looks better if you do that. And uh, he wears the right clothes, and he invites people to the revival, and, and he, he might be a deacon, and he helps out, and he cleans up, and he does all this stuff. Well, you know what's underneath in his heart? The first chance he gets, resentment. Did he really know his father? He was surprised that his father celebrated the return of his son who could have been dead and he was mad about it. Does that sound like a Christian to you? Let me show you what that looks like in modern society. A drug addict comes to church, desperate. They're miraculously converted. And next thing you know, within a few weeks, they have so much hunger for the Lord and they're so serious about Him and they have the presence of God and it keeps staying and you see that they're a real convert. They really know the Lord. They're serious about the Lord and they get appointed to do some job in the church. And the nominal Christian who's gone their whole life and tithed regularly and sat in the same pew and worn the same clothes and invited people occasionally resents it. They might admit it out loud, they might not. But inside they resent it. And I would ask the question, does that person really know God? I'm not even questioning whether they're saved and they're going to go to heaven someday. I'm saying, do they really know God? My opinion is that the son, the wasteful son, left not primarily because he was drawn into sin, not primarily because of women or alcohol or parties. That's not why he left. He just did that after he left. The reason he left is he didn't love his father. And the other son didn't really know his father. And I'm convinced that when God's people, individually, maybe even collectively as churches, when we get away from him, when we get out of his presence, when we become... (coughs) What some people would call backslidden. I, I still don't understand the mechanics of that word. I'm not making fun of it. But the idea is you are not where you should be with the Lord. And the focus, even in that statement, is all about you. People tell me that a lot. I'm not where I should be with the Lord. Is he where he should be with you? If he is, who cares about how you feel? 
Get over yourself. The reason the son left is he didn't love his father and the reason he came back is he got over himself. And he began to understand his father's relationship to him and he began to love him. People leave the church not because of sin. They leave because they don't understand God's love. People who go to church regularly leave the presence of God because we don't really love Him at the time. The problem is love. It's not sin. You can't overcome an addiction by focusing on not doing the addiction. Any good Therapist will tell you that. Any good preacher has experienced that that doesn't help people. It's, I use this a, a analogy a lot, but it's like, how in the world does a person driving through some vacant road in the desert run into a telephone pole? And yet they do. Because for what, maybe they got dozy, maybe they started falling asleep, maybe they got distracted, looked down at their phone, started... And they see this danger and they focus on the danger that they want to avoid and that's the very thing they hit. We know there's been studies and race car drivers and all kinds. Anybody with a kind of scenario will tell you, you focus on where you want to go, not where you don't want to go and not where you are. And that's part of what I've been preaching about. And what I'm telling you now today is the spiritual truth behind it. You get away from the Lord because you lose focus of His love and your love for Him. And that's true. I'm saying us all. When we get caught up in entangling sin, when we do things that we know are wrong, when we give in to some temptation that we've given into before and we say, why did I do this again? Does that apply to any of y'all? If you're honest. And if you honestly answer no, then you have a bigger problem, which is self-righteousness. I'm not suggesting that better Christians are worse sinners. I'm suggesting and I'm, I'm exhorting and I'm teaching as clearly as I can that the only good Christian is one who loves the Lord. It's about your heart for Him, not your actions, because your actions can camouflage a resentful, wicked, unloving heart. And you might not even realize it. That uh, better brother might not have recognized his true feelings about his younger brother until he came home. He might not have been thinking about it much. But when he was finally there and he got the attention and the... Did he go, try, did he go look for his brother? Did he care about him? Did he shed any tears over him? Did he want him to come back? And then when he came back, before he even meets with him, he assumes what he did with the money and he's mad that his father loves him. Basically says, "Why you never threw me a party. And the father, I have to say this again, basically says, you don't need a party. You're here benefiting from my blessings constantly. What do you need a celebration for? A lot of Christians who've been on the road for a little while start to feel like that, that son. God, why, why is it not so exciting anymore? Where's my party? Where's my celebration? Where's my feast? How come this new convert has all the energy and joy and enthusiasm? Part of it may be what I just talked about, but part of it may be that life's not supposed to be exciting all the time. 
you're basking in the Father's blessings. If that's not enough for you, why isn't it? Do you really love Him? Do you really love the Lord? The reason that son left is he didn't love his father. That's why I read it in the first verse this morning. The love of Christ constrains us. Paul the Apostle talked about him and the other apostles and basically said the reason we preach is God's love, Christ's love. I think they experienced what I've said before. It's not enough for me anymore to see or hear about some person being saved. I want that. I desire it. I love to see it. There's something glorious about being in a service and somebody coming down broken and under the weight of sin and and moments or minutes later when they really repent coming up with this glory of God on their face and this peace. There's something so wonderful about experiencing that. But it's not as good as experiencing God for me. Before we go to Corinthians, let me revisit this verse. Why did the son go back? The circumstances looked like he he was hungry and tired and had realized the vanity of what he did. And that's all true, but there's an even deeper reason. And this here is a picture of repentance, of a person coming to know God and his love for them and coming to know him. That's what this is a picture of. It says, when he came to himself. He was living in a self-invented delusion. Like so many people in the world. Whether they grew up in church and left, or whether they were... And by the way, I don't know if y'all have noticed this, but I, I have noticed the most bitter people are former church people. They're the ones who... I mean, people who didn't grow up in church that I... I'm just talking about me personally that I know. They don't have as much bitterness and resentment as the ones who grew up believing in an intellectual religious system and realizing that it never fulfilled, never answered, never helped. When he came to himself. Now a person who grows up in what they think is their father's house in a religious system, and when they come to themselves, sometimes they leave the church. They say, what's the difference? I don't feel any different. And they leave. And there's a parallel that that's kind of what he did. He's with his father's house. He thinks the grass is greener on the other side. He thinks something's better and he goes and tries it. Why do you want to leave his homeland? Would the neighbors have been too nosy to let him sin as badly as he wanted to sin? Probably. That's why people used to, when they dated, they had chaperones. So they would behave. (laughs) Or why now people who are smart try to go in a public place so they'll behave. He wanted to get away so he could do whatever he wanted. And getting away allowed him to have enough time alone to see what was what. He tried everything he wanted to. He tried to send the excitement. He did everything his father trained him not to do. This, by all counts, was a good father who would have trained his son in the ways of righteousness. And this man did the opposite And when he got to the lowest point, he lost everything. He was about to starve. He came to himself. That means his right mind was restored to him. His sense of perspective was again accurate. 
It means he began to see the world for what it really is for the first time. And what he saw is, what I've been doing is miserable. And he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and I'm perishing with hunger? I will go to my father and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Do you see the transformation in him? This is the picture of a person recognizing their relationship to the Father in heaven and repenting. Before he was a man who was consumed with his own desires, his own lust, his own play, he was consumed with pleasure. So much so that he completely despised his father and his father's blessings and his father's love. So much so that when he told his dad, give me my inheritance, he was basically saying it would be more convenient for me if you were already dead. Why don't you go on and die, old man, and give me my money? That was the condition of his heart. And now the condition of his heart is not a resentful, spiteful, self-serving son. It is a person who says, my father is loving and merciful and he will receive me. And if he receives me even as a servant, this will be better than the life I've created for myself. I don't have to be his son again. I just want to be a member of his household again. You see the difference in the change of his heart. And that's what happens when God, through the Holy Spirit, begins working in a lost person's heart. He shows them who they are in relation to him. And they no longer have a pompous, self-righteous attitude that despises God. They begin to realize, I am not worthy. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a land of people of unclean lips. What did the prophet say? For my eyes have beheld the Lord. For the first time, this prodigal son came to himself and realized his father really loves him. That was what made him want to go back home. Maybe we don't realize, too, when it says he hired himself out or he joined himself to a citizen of that country. That's a casual, old-fashioned way of saying he basically signed up to be a servant. Hired hand, a slave. Why didn't he go to another land and do that? Was his father's house the only place on earth that wasn't under famine? He could have gone somewhere else and gotten and hired himself out to some other servant. The point, it, it wasn't just that there was famine in that land. It wasn't just that he spent through his money. It was he recognized what his father had to offer was better than anything else in the world. And he said, even if I don't get to be regarded as his son again, which would be waiving any future inheritance, at least I can be there working for him. So there's the picture of what repentance is. It's not just these religious phrases. It's not just doing a 180. A 180 is you're going this way, you turn a half circle and you go the other way. <laughs> so much more than that. Repentance is recognizing you've been wrong. Not just hearing in your mind you've been wrong, but believing it in your heart. Trusting, knowing, feeling, being convinced. I was wrong. And this is what he says to himself inside as he's processing all of this. He says, 
I will arise and go to my father and I'll say unto him, I have sinned. That's the, the, in today's language, we would say, I was wrong. I've noticed now in our culture, it's not that hard for a person to say, I'm a sinner. They, they, they don't mind being a sinner. They would prefer to be a sinner. But you know what's hard for them to say? I was wrong. You get somebody to admit they're wrong. And that's what this man said. I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now, here is the picture of God's forgiveness and salvation. When he was yet a great way off. Don't you love that? We don't do it all. We don't take ourselves to God. We don't have to, 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 to get up from where we are, go all the way to God. Our part is when we understand who He really is and that He really loves us, is to recognize who we really are and that we want whatever He'll give of Himself to us and start heading toward Him. And when He was yet a long way off, His Father saw Him, and He had compassion, and He ran to Him, and He hugged Him, and He kissed Him. That's how God receives us. And as one of God's children, every time I sin, that's how He receives me. I'm so perplexed by Christians who talk about God whooping on them, or beating them, or these I I wonder if they know the same Lord I know. I mean, they take one isolated verse out of Hebrews, those he loves, he chastens. If he chastens them not, they're bastards and not sons. And build their whole religious experience on it. If God ain't beating me up, I'm not one of his. That's not the Lord I serve. When I think the Lord should beat me up, he doesn't. When I think he should be hard on me, and punish me. He doesn't. I'm not telling you that sin is without consequence. I'm telling you, God, when you want to go back to Him, will run to you with open arms and embrace you with love and mercy that you can't even imagine. The other beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture here. His father runs to him when he's a great way off has compassion on him, hugs him, kisses him. And the son then tells the father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But even before he could verbally express to his father how he felt, his father already showed him a posture of unconditional love and forgiveness. Do you see that? It wasn't contingent upon what the son did. The father loved him already and unconditionally and it never stopped. He wasn't, we do this as humans. We maintain our resentment and our bitterness until somebody apologizes to our satisfaction. And then sometimes we rub it in even more, bring it up from years past. God doesn't Amen. do that. He tells us that, that our sins are in the sea of forgetfulness. I don't know that he ever actually forgets anything, but he regards what has been forgiven as past and before the man can verbally repent, the father runs to him with outstretched arms and love. That's the same way. Every, so I've heard so many people tell about when God saved them. They'll, they'll say something like, I just got up and started to go. 
to the altar. As soon as I got out of my seat, or different things like that, it's not all about what you say and the words you use. And God just waits for that moment of, of transformation in your heart where you just recognize God loves me and I want Him. And then He's there with outstretched arms. Now that moment is a moment of unconditional surrender. Amen. Because you recognize that in you is nothing that will help you and in God is everything you crave. And this prodigal son recognized that about his father. He loves me. And he receives him without stretch arms. And then, another way God is not like people. Then, after he receives him and loves him and hugs him, the son then repents verbally. And the father says, let's have a party. What do people want to do? I'm sorry I hurt you. Yeah, you're right, you hurt me. I was wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. You've been wrong a lot of years. That's not how our Lord is. Because He already knows our hearts. And He knows when our heart is at a place of unconditional desire for His love. And He knows when we're chasing all the other stuff of life. And when we want to chase the other stuff of life, sometimes He lets us. Yes, yes, yes. I always think about what C.S. Lewis said. He said there's two types of people in the world. The one who says to the Father, Thy will be done. And the one to whom God says, All right, then have it your own way. We go around the world with all these things that we think will satisfy, all these inventions of mankind, excitement, uh, the things that make adrenaline rush, the things that make dopamine flow. And all the time, the Father is sitting back saying, you are far too easily satisfied. I have so much better things for you. The problem with God's people, it's not a sin problem, it's a love problem. Love is the foundational motivation. If you love God truly in a moment, you won't sin. In that moment. When you're consumed for His love for you, it's all-consuming. There's no way you can sin with your eyes on the Father. I'm not suggesting you can keep your eyes on the Father permanently. <laughs> we don't. We have wandering eyes. They dart around and look at all kinds of different things. God receives him with open arms. He doesn't punish him over and over and over for his sin. Listen, this man has already received the punishment for his sin. He's already been separated from his father's love. He's already seen the reward of iniquity. The father knows that. He knows his heart, and now he knows this son is going to be with me the rest of my life. We're going to spend just a few minutes in 2 Corinthians. And I'll read verse 12 through 21. Chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. We commend not ourselves again unto you, but we give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may have a somewhat or something to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. 
For whether we be beside ourselves, it's to God, or whether we're sober, it's for your cause. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, and they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we know him more in that way. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Specifically, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto him, unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now we're ambassadors for Christ as though God beseeched you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God in him. This final verse, Jesus Christ did not actually become sin. This means he took on him the sin of humanity and he was punished for it. But I want to talk about this last part a little bit. God has given us a ministry of reconciliation, not a ministry of condemnation. We're not supposed to be like that elder son and critical towards sinful people. I've told some of you this, maybe all of you, but I, I want to mention it again. One of the best examples I've had of that is a homeless man a couple of years ago that when you work in the city or you spend time in a city, you, you start to identify who's going to ask you for money. And I made eye contact with this man, and the second I did, I regretted it because I knew he was about to ask me for money. And I was, I was sick of it. And sure enough, he, he asked for food. And uh, I said, well, there's a McDonald's down the road. I'll, I'll buy you some food if you'll meet me up there. i got to go the other way and get my car, and then I'll come down there and meet you. But in my heart, I felt like the elder son in the parable. That's how I felt. I was resentful. I was inconvenienced. I was frustrated. And I was doing it out of do-gooderism. Eh, I'm supposed to do stuff like this. So I went and got my car, came down there. Sure enough, he was sitting at McDonald's waiting on me. The first thing that impressed me about this man, I said, what would you like to eat? And he told me the cheapest thing on the menu. The second thing that impressed me is he wouldn't come inside. Because he knew he was dirty, smelly, unkept and didn't want to hurt that business's reputation. So we sat outside on the curb, out of the way. And I went inside and ordered him one of the cheap hamburgers, came out, brought it to him, and he was sitting there eating it. We were chatting a little, and I said, I'll get you another one. And he said, um, he said if you wouldn't mind, that, that'd be nice. So I went and got him another one, another burger. Came back. And still, I, my heart was softened a little, but I was still in this mindset of, you know, I'm the religious person who knows God. This man's life is a mess. Maybe I can help him. And so 
I said, uh, we started talking to him. So what are you doing out here? And he, he told me, he said, oh, I was been in and out of jail my whole life and started juvenile hall. And all the way back to his childhood is where this started with his mother. And we talked about religion a little. And as it turns out, he already knew all about religion, knew about God, probably knew God after talking to him. And he pulled this worn-out Gideon Bible. I'm one of the little bitty New Testaments, the green ones. And he'd used it so much, the covers were worn off. And he said, I want you to have this. And I said, I've got plenty of Bibles at home. You, you can keep. He said, no. He said, I want you to have this. When I'm not drunk, God really shows me things about his word. And I've got notes all through there, and I want you to have it. Changed my perspective completely. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Sometimes I wonder if sin is as important to God as it is to us. You ever think about that? Sin is terrible. It separates you from God. But I'm talking about the societal sins that we identify the things that people do. What God cares about is people who refuse to acknowledge Him as Lord, to worship Him, to love Him. That is really what sin is. And everything else is a subcategory. And that's why an event can be perfectly right in a certain context and wrong in another context. Because it's about the motivation of your heart. It's about what the Father sees. Jesus lived in this world with the Spirit of God inside of him, reconciling the world to himself. He's the only man who has lived a completely sinless life, and he went around with a heart for reconciliation, not condemnation. Why do we think, as religious people, that our job is condemnation. It's recon- You know what reconciliation means? I keep using that word, and maybe there's a chance you don't know what it means. The way it's used in our language now is usually in accounting, and they'll say reconcile the books. And it means making everything right, putting it all together the way it should be. It means unifying. It means bringing back into right relationship. So when this scripture says that Jesus was in the world with the Spirit of God in him, reconciling the world to himself, he lived his life in such a way that he labored to restore the right relationship between God and man. Why do you do the religious stuff you do? Is it because you feel guilty if you don't? You want to go back to church just so it'll make you feel better? What you can get out of it? Why do you go to church? Why do you tithe if you do? Why do you do any of this stuff? Is it out of a motivation, a great love for your father and a desire to reconcile the world to him? Or is it for some self-serving desire? I don't know the answer for you. This is a question you have to probe inside and ask yourself here in this building, listening to this recording, all of you. 
Is it so you can feel better than someone else? Oh, religion. That's one of the main problems that people have against Western Christianity. Is the people embedded within that religious system who only partake in that religious system so that they can feel better than the people outside? I wish all those people would leave. And let churches be dwindled down to the small numbers of the truly faithful people who love God and then let them see what real Christianity is. Earlier in this chapter, I want to explain this too before we conclude. The love of Christ constrains us. You know what that word means? Another translation translates it, the love of Christ controls us. The word is the Greek word suneko, and it means quite a few different things in different contexts. It can mean to hold together. It can mean to compress, as in holding your hands over your ears. It can mean a a crowd sieging a city, constraining the city. It can be used in terms of arresting a prisoner, compelling that prisoner to go where you want him to. It can be used figuratively to compel, perplex, afflict, preoccupy, hold in, press, to be in a strait, to be taken with, to hold completely, to hold fast. All of these things is is how that word is used in Scripture. It can be mean, it can use, excuse me, it can be used to mean urge, Compel, impel, propel. I added those, but it does that too. It propels you. The best way to understand what this word means is to see how it's actually used in Scripture. And so I'm going to read you the verses where it is used. And I think we'll have a new understanding of what it means to be constrained by the love of God. Remember this this message, the prodigal son left because he was not constrained by his father's. He didn't love his dad. And when we leave God, it's because we don't love him in that time. What shall separate us from the love of God? Neither height nor depth, angels, principalities, things to come, things present, nothing. And you think sin's big enough to separate you from God? Paul said nothing. The only thing that separates you from the love of God is you not loving Him. So listen to this. This is how the love of God constrains us. This is what the word means. Matthew 4.24, it's used. And this verse says, Jesus' fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto Him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torment. The word here, the Greek word, is translated as taken with. They were constrained with sickness. They were surrounded. They were overwhelmed. They were completely held in paralyzing sickness. And the only way they got out is God freedom. That's how the word's used there. Luke 4.38, He arose out of the synagogue, entered into Simon's house, and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. Same word Paul used as constraint. Luke 8.37, Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes around about them besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. The word constrained here, the the Greek word is used in this way, taken with fear. They were consumed with fear. It's all they thought about. 
It governed their decisions. Luke 8, 45, Jesus said, Who touched me? And when everyone denied it, Peter and those that were with him said, Master, the multitude is, is thronging around you. That is the word that Paul said constrain. Thronging around you. They're pressing all around you. Everybody needs something from you. They're constrained in this situation. Luke 12, 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? That's the same word, straightened. What was he saying? This burden is pressing down and around and all over me. It is all-consuming. He's not talking about water. He's talking about his death on the cross. Being baptized with the sin of man and the wrath of God and death. And he was saying, I'm constrained by that. Luke 9, 19.43 The days shall come upon thee, and thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side. Keep in on every side is the same word. You can't get out. The men that held Jesus mocked him. Held, here is the word. Held by force. You can't leave. Luke, uh, Acts 7, 57. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Ran upon Stephen with one accord and gnashed upon him. Stopped their ears. They constrained their ears with their hands. Pressed in. Pushed pressure. This is how the word is used that Paul... There's a couple others, but I'll, I'll stop. When he says the love of Christ constrains us, if you think it's some kind of casual statement like, yeah, God makes me want to serve Him. The way the word is used is being trapped. You can't get out. And I want you to know that. If you've never sat down and really dug into your heart and thought about this, every time I get away from the Lord, that is all that brings me back. His constraining, compelling love. It's the only reason I preach. His love compels. If you really know God... I heard a Marine who's a preacher use this analogy, and, and maybe this is a quick way of saying it. He said, when I was tasked, when, when my job was guard duty that night, I was constrained to stay there. He had no option to leave. He couldn't fall asleep. He couldn't do anything else. Paul says, that is how God's love is for people who are saved. It consumes you. It surrounds you. It holds you in. It holds you together. It compels you. It propels you. It motivates you. It drives you. It heals you. God's love is all-consuming. And the problem that we have in religious circles today, really, we don't have an all-consuming, self-transcending love for God the Father. The only difference in the prodigal son who left his father and the prodigal son who returned to his father is the one who returned loved him. When he came to himself, what he was upset about, this is the difference in constraining love of God and a desire for more self-indulgence. When he came to himself, he didn't say, oh, my life is such a mess. I'm so sorry my life is hard. He didn't say, I'm scared. He didn't say, I'm sick of this. He didn't say, I'm tired of this. It wasn't about him feeling lonely 
or depressed or despair. It wasn't until he could see his sin as hatred and abuse of his father that he could accept that he was wrong and he needed to repent and he needed to go home. He didn't say any of those things. He said, I have sinned against my father. In Scripture, Joseph, when he was about to be taken and sinned by Potiphar's wife, you know what got him to leave? Not the rules his daddy raised him with. Not societal customs. Not fear of being punished. What got him out of that house was love for his father. He said, how can I do this thing and sin against God? You can get out of consequences. You can skirt the authorities. You can bend the truth. Punishment can be mitigated. The only thing that can really compel us to be what God wants is love for him. I'm going to say this and close. If there's room in your heart for impatience, frustration, critical feeling, self-superior thoughts, anger, bitterness, strife, envy, any of those kind of feelings. If you look at your brother or sister with resentment, frustration, if you look at people outside the church with subtypes of self-superiority, if your relationship with them is like mine started with that homeless man and then in the end he's the one who blessed me. I spent $3 at McDonald's and I got a lifelong spiritual lesson. If you have those kind of things in you, you are not consumed with the love of God right now. You can be. Psalm 36.9, I read this the other night when I tried to preach about the Father of Lights. It says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. You want to see the world as God intends you to see it? See it with His eyes of love. And it'll stop being this overwhelming, scary, bad place. It'll be a place of opportunity to serve Him. Those of you who already know the Lord and have been saved, you've already been in His house, I want to tell you this. Have peace. If you don't, be willing to say, to say I was wrong. I've sinned against my Father. And beg Him to take you back. And He will before you even know it. If you've never known the Lord, and you're one of those people that I alluded to who might be bitter or frustrated or resentful, or maybe you recognize that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Maybe you hate religion. If you feel like that, I think probably I hate religion more than you. And I'll tell you this if you've never thought of it. Jesus hated religion more than you can imagine. The founder of true Christianity hated man's religion. So if you feel that way, and you still know there's something missing inside of you, and you have not had peace in your life, and you haven't had safety and comfort, you can. You have to come to yourself. You have to realize what reality is. And when you realize what reality is, you have to go to the Father and say, Oh, I've been wrong. It might be what I've heard some people say, their testimony, I've been wrong my whole life. If you're religious and you don't have peace and you're a good church person, you've been raised doing all this stuff, that is how your heart will feel. I have been wrong my whole life. Oh man, that's hard. But it's what it takes to repent and come to the Father. And you can have peace. You can have 
peace. Peace is a result of the Father's love and your love for him. God bless you.